Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be in Ephesians 4, verse 11 here in just a few moments. If you're visiting Christ Church, uh, my name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here. And we're in a series called Why Church? Because we live in a world that asks the question legitimately, and I think it's a, it's a fair question, uh, especially if we're open to the answer. And that is, why is there a church and why should I be a part of it? Why should I commit myself to it? When the church has not always had a great reputation because of the way people treat people, uh, why? So we've been trying to answer that. In the first three weeks, we focused on the answer all about God. And Michael DeFazio started our series by saying, why church? Because God. Because it's God's plan. Because God asked us to. And the church won't make sense to you and me if God doesn't make sense to us. And I don't mean we understand him like we know everything about him. But if we don't love him and value him and seek him, the church will be an encumbrance. If we know who God is and we love him, the church will be helpful. And we'll explain that as we go along. But we've talked about the fact that because God wants to be in a relationship with us, and that relationship with him becomes a power to have relationships with others, and because God wants to change our hearts, and he wants to bring life and joy to us, the church is here. The church exists for us and for the purposes of growing and helping others grow as well. And then last week, we focused on one of the tangible results in our everyday life, and that is to seek a greater truth. That the Word of God shows us what is right, what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. And that we need to be together studying the Word, allowing the, the Spirit of God to work among us, and to allow the Word of God to give us direction and purpose, to help us become who we're supposed to become. And so this week, I want to answer another part of that by saying why church is so that we engage a greater fulfillment. That we engage a fulfillment that can't be found outside of this. You see, we're going to be in Ephesians today, and we covered the book of Ephesians earlier, or late spring, early summer, in a series called Repurposed. And we talked about this passage, and I'd like to review in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, what, it's, what I feel safe to call the core mission of the body of Christ, the church. What does Paul say is the reason we exist, why do we exist, and what does God want to do with that? So let's look at verses 11 through 16 this morning. It was he, speaking about God, it was God who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's why we exist. There will, excuse me, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is head, that is Christ. For from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So it's a greater fulfillment. We're here for a purpose beyond ourselves. 
And so what I want to talk to you about is in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, in the first six verses, Paul establishes that we're to be unified around a very direct truth. One Lord, one faith, one hope, one God, one baptism. One Father above all, in on and through all. That these principles found in the first six verses, these are the things we need to be unified in. And everything else is a flavor or a preference, but it's not a necessity. And one of the issues that people find the church problematic is because we focus on things that are not the most important things. And we end up dividing and segregating over things that are our preferences and not important to the reality we stay in. So the first point I want to make this morning, so we don't overlook this, the most important thing about a greater fulfillment is this. The unity of Jesus in the diversity of his people. That we can be unified and be diverse. That we can focus on these most important things. One Lord, one faith, one gospel, one hope, one baptism, one resurrection, and everything else is a flavor or a preference. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, let me put it this way. Why do you only have one remote in your house? Um, For your television. Why is there only one? Because if everybody had one, we'd blow our television up, would we not? It's a simple truth, right? I always tell my boys when I leave, when they were younger, they'd get a kick out of this. Their mom, not so much. I would leave the house on a trip, and I'd look at the boys, what's the most important thing to remember? And they'd look at me with their big blue eyes, and they'd look at me and smile and go, mom can't have the remote. Yes. (laughs) Things must remain in order while I'm gone. So in unity and diversity, what am I saying? I'm saying that one of the most, and I'm I'm going to use this term, I hope effectively, one of the most supernatural realities of the church is that all of us can remain together and not kill each other. Can I have an amen? Because we don't agree on many things. We agree on the most important things. And what about those things we don't agree about? Like whether it's style of music or time of a Sunday to gather together or what clothing people wear or tattoos or hairstyles, or the way people spend money, or the way they don't spend money. We can go for on and on and on. And the fact is, inside each one of us, on every one of those issues, we're right. And we can, we can tell people, I'm right. You, this, these people, if they love Jesus, they shouldn't go there. They shouldn't do this. They shouldn't do this. And we're here to say that the unity of Jesus is most displayed in the diversity of its people. There's not one right way to do this. Are you uncomfortable? Because you'd like to send me an email going, I got three ideas, Mark, about how you could have said that better. You're just demonstrating my point. We don't have to agree on the salt and peppering. We have to agree on the meat. We have to agree on Jesus Christ, born a virgin, raised from the dead by the power of God and king of all kings. Everything else we can willingly disagree on. Because look at your homes. How many of you agree on everything in your home? Look at your spouse and say, I do. I think we agree on everything. You can't do it. You're both laughing. If Braden ruled our family, we'd eat at Qdoba every night for the love. The kid's going to become a burrito. It drives me nuts. Where do you want to eat? Qdoba. No. But I love that kid. Absolutely. See, is he a joy in our home? Absolutely. Can he be a chore? Just like his dad. You see, all of us live in a world where our diversity is something that makes us ourselves, 
but it also can challenge unity. So Paul said to the church, focus on the things that matters the most and let everything else work itself out, and it will. Which means we don't all have to eat at the same place or watch the same programs or like the same teams or do any of that stuff. We don't have to, but we can focus on Christ. Because we're here to develop a unity that allows the message to go into all the world. Have you noticed the church is doing quite well across the globe? Which means there's not one right, white, right way. I almost said white way. That would have been awkward. The right way. And I would have made my point. There's, there's no one, one white way to do the church. And right way to do the church. All over the globe it's working. I think about it. When Heather and I met and we were dating... She invited me to come home to her family for Christmas, which was a big deal. And so we go to Christmas at her house, and I didn't realize how messed up they had Christmas. They open presents Christmas Eve. Who does that? And in my family, we open it Christmas morning, as is in the Bible, and we, we oh, it's, it's there. We open presents Christmas morning, and in the Maryland Christian world, Every present is open individually and demonstrated to the entire family what it is. If it's a toy, you got it out, you put the batteries in it, you operated it. And heaven forbid you got clothes. Because that woman made you put them on in front of everybody and like walk the runway. And it's horrible. I hated clothes. for And I can't open presents in front of people and make them feel happy. I always disappoint them because they're like, oh, you hate it. No, I hate this experience. I don't hate your present. I just hate everyone staring at me because I'm not an actor. I don't do well. And so all the, I go to her family Christmas, and they open it Christmas Eve, and everybody opened every present right now. Just this puff of paper and ribbons. Madness. And then we all looked at each other. What'd you get? What'd you get? What'd you get? And I was like, there's a better way to do this, people. But they loved Jesus. They loved each other. They loved generosity. They were expressive in their appreciation. They were family. Church, are you with me? There's no one way to do church that's better than any other way if Jesus Christ is the core of it. So Paul says, why? Because we wouldn't have figured this out on our own, would we have? Why, church? Because we need to be with other people that are different from us so that we can show the peace and love of Christ like nobody else can. I think the church is supposed to be a bit of a parade, a bit of a circus, because only then can we truly love each other when we don't always agree on everything. And I want to tell you, only being here seven years, I love this place because the moment I walked into it, we can disagree, still love each other, still love Jesus, and I think that's one of the reasons God's given us health. It's because there's unity surrounded in diversity, ethnocentric is what the Jewish church or the, the Jewish people were when Jesus came, and he made them others centric. He taught them to love and pursue peace. You see, when we gather together, the things that define us outside of the church have no, make no difference inside the church. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how little you have. It doesn't matter how educated you are or how uneducated you are. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your gender. None of these things matter because inside the church, the body, not the building, but inside the church family, all of our differences are gone away because Christ is the common denominator. That's why, church, because we need to be involved with others even when they're different. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.16, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I need to say this, and I know sometimes I'm a a bit defensive, but I, I just feel like I need to this morning. God did not establish the church as punishment or penance. 
He established the church because he, know what, he knows what we need. And when you truly experience the community of faith, you'll find what you've been looking for. It may not always be perfect, but if it's surrounded by Jesus, it'll be effective. Paul says, so that the body of Christ, all of this together, all of our differences given away to the unity, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So let's move on. What is this maturity he speaks of? What does that mean biblically to be mature? I found two definitions that I loved. The first one is, maturity is when there is a legitimate, cohesive transaction between our mind, soul, heart, and hands. And wouldn't you say that's fair? You know your children are becoming mature when they begin to combine not only their desires, but their actions. Their desires, their actions, and their their mindset and their focus. In fact, the word used by Paul, uh, the, the Greek word teleon means having reached full natural growth or development. See, all of us have within us the desire to remain childish to a certain degree. And childishness is always demonstrated by, I'm more important than anybody else around me. Mine. A, a concept every kid has gone through. Each one of us has lived through. That's mine. And when we see the church as mine, or we see our families as mine, and we begin to use those possessive pronouns, what we've done is we've measured that we've not grown up. We're not living truly in community. So when we measure the whole life, the natural growth and development, whose measurement are we using? The world's or our own? You see, the reason I started last week with talking about a greater truth is that if the Word of God teaches us what is right, what is not right, how to get right and how to stay right, then there is a standard by which outreaches the standardness of selfish where we say to ourselves, no, this is what I want. This makes me happy, and you can't tell me I'm not to be happy. When the Word of God says, no, make it about others, not about yourself, and then you'll find true happiness. And we can begin to see what God's doing. Listen to what happens in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is speaking to the Apostle John to write these words down. He says, To the angels of the churches in Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. Just a quick point here. Jesus said, you have a reputation that you're alive, but you're really dead. Now notice what he's saying. He's not saying you're not doing anything. He's saying you're not doing the things that matter. You're not opening yourself up to the things that expand you, grow you allow you to become what God wants you to become. <clears throat> it says you're busy doing things that aren't helpful. You see, there's, you're not moving into patience. You're not moving into love. You're not taking the risks of focusing on others. You're instead continue to do the things that serve you best. And that's why the church is a challenge to some of us. Because within the church, we don't live for our own glory. Within the church, it's sometimes inconvenient. But within the church... We fulfill God's purpose. We seek what God is after. And we begin to look at what God's trying to do. You see, when you look at a good portion of Ephesians chapter 4, you're going to see in verses 11 and 12 that we're to place ourselves in authority and submission to others. That's a challenge to us in America, isn't it? I want to be in charge. I want to control things. And yet, God says, no, that part of the church is 
that I have given some that are to be pastors and overseers or shepherds. We, we use the term elders here, another biblical term. And these are men that have been entrusted by the congregation to oversee us spiritually and to make sure we're okay. And that's why sometimes our elders speak to us. And they speak to us in ways that we don't always like, but they speak to us because they're trying to warn us. And I, I don't know where your background is in church, but we need to be clear here. This isn't my church. I, I couldn't pastor the number of people who come here. It's the, our eldership that oversees, and every one of us on staff is in submission to our eldership. And I'm grateful for these men. And I don't say that because they're listening. If they weren't here, I'd say more, but I don't want to build up their egos. I love these guys. The hours they put in prayer and protecting this body. But when I came here, I had to say to these men, I don't even know you yet, but I'm going to take a knee and bow in submission to your leadership and your guidance. And without that in our lives, we are out of God's order. So people that say, I don't want to be a part of the church because I'm going to run my own spiritual life, you don't understand. And let me be bold enough to say, you're biblically ignorant. Because there is no Christian found in all of the New Testament that was not under the authority and leadership of an eldership. That's why, church. Because we need people to speak into our lives while we're being spoken to. And to grow together. And that maturity then becomes this pursuit until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. I want to break those two pieces down and then I'll be done. What does unity in the faith mean? Again, not to belabor the point, that the word faith means I believe that God is good and for me and I believe that God will keep all of his promises. So unity in the faith is a belief in God and it's a belief in what the, the scriptures, the faith, what it reveals. Like Jude tells us, the faith once delivered to the saints. Paul tells Timothy to hold up the word of God, remember where you got it, and communicate it. This faith is the teaching of scripture that reveals God, and the revelation of all scripture is Jesus. And I know you expect to hear that in church, but have you thought much about that? The Old Testament is the promise of Christ, and the New Testament is the fulfillment of that promise. God is faithful. Every passage of Scripture in the Old Testament reckons to the moment that God is going to fix man's sinful nature through the gift of Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, it's explored how he did it. And what are the implications of it going forward? So if all of Scripture, if this unity in the faith is on the things found in the six, first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4, then what do you need to know today to be able to have unity in the faith? So let's talk. My Bible tells me completely that Jesus is our prophet. And what is a prophet? A prophet is a person who comes from God to speak to man about God. All right? Nod your heads if that made sense. A prophet comes from God to man to tell us about God. So, what does the scripture say? Jesus came as the word, the word made flesh and dwelt among us. He revealed the Father. He told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know how God forgives, look at Jesus. You want to know how God loves? Look at Jesus. You want to know how important you are to God? Look at Jesus. You want to know the price he's willing to pay to bring you back from death to life? Look at the cross and look at Jesus. Church, are you with me? So if a prophet comes from God to man to reveal God to us, is Jesus still a prophet? Okay, three of you risked. You have to answer this question for us to go forward. Not, not like I'm going to leave you here all day. 
but the rest of this doesn't make sense. If a prophet comes from God to man to reveal God, is Jesus still prophesying to us today? Absolutely. But you say physically he's not here. His Holy Spirit is. And if you listen to Michael's teaching, and if you haven't, please go online and spend some time. Michael's teaching on what is the church on Wednesday nights. And he taught very well last week about this concept that it's not just what we do, it's who we are. And the Holy Spirit is speaking into us, prophesying from God about the work of God and what he wants us to become. He still is our prophet. In Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, two disciples were walking, and Jesus appeared in the resurrected form, and he was walking with them, and as they traveled down the road, he began to explain to them what the scriptures were teaching. And they sat down in their house at the end of their journey, and they broke bread. And when Jesus broke bread like he did on the night of the great Passover, when he broke bread, they said, it's him. And then they said to themselves, did our hearts not burn within us when he spoke to us the scriptures? Jesus still prophesies. He's also our priest. So if a prophet comes from God to us to tell us about God, a priest comes from man to God to tell God about us. Is Jesus still a priest? Absolutely. Who went to the Father and advocates for us? Hebrews 10, 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Our priest did the work. Where priests would bring in animals that would buy us time, Jesus gave himself which bought us eternity. So church, I'm going to ask you, ready for the answer? Is he still our priest? Yeah. It says in 1 John 2, 1, he stands before the Father daily representing us. And every time we mess up, Jesus looks at the Father and he says, yeah, he's mine. My sacrifice covered that too. And God is pleased with that because God was the one who sent Jesus. God's not begrudgingly sitting in the judgment chair going, oh, he escaped another blow. No, he's looking at his son saying, you saved the one I loved. You see, he's our prophet, he's our priest, and the Bible says he's a king. And what I just want to point out, and I don't have much time to develop this, I can another day. If you look at what was lost, if you look at the punishment given to mankind when they sin in the garden, and you look at everything that was taken from them, control of nature, control of death and life, Jesus restored every bit of that. Let's just review. Did Jesus control nature with his miracles? Absolutely. Did he walk on water and did he calm storms? Absolutely. Did he cast out demons and take control of the demon world? Absolutely. Did he raise people to life? And did he overcome death and the resurrection? You see, he's a king. He's supreme over everything. Satan has no more weaponry. He has no more power. Evil exists. Oh my God goodness does evil exist but jesus will set everything right he will overcome all of it and the spirit that within you is greater than the spirit that's in this world jesus is king it says in ephesians 1:19, his incomparably great power for us who believe that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realm far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things, church, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the, what? For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It's a greater fulfillment. The church is his body. And the unity in the faith is in the things that Jesus brings us. 
And lastly, it comes down to the knowledge of the Son of God. And I found something quite interesting about this. When we talk about knowledge, there is the simple concept of knowing. And the Greek word for knowing is the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Okay, so this concept of this gnosis. That means to know something. And then there's an emphatic understanding of gnosis called epinosis. So the, it just puts the prefix E-P-I on it. And you may say, okay, so there's knowing. I, I know Jesus, gnosis. And I have experienced Jesus, epinosis. And the easy way to explain this is when Heather and I were dating, and I finally got her to like me, which was the first step, and that took a year. Once she started liking me, then she started hanging out with me. And she started changing me, and I started changing her, and we became to go from like to something a little bit different. And I remember there were moments that Heather would say, I love you, and that meant the world to me. But I, that was gnosis. I heard her say it. I could hold her to it in a court of law. Right? I had her. She made that mistake. That was my opening. She loved me. So I gnosis that. But it wasn't until I could epinosis it that it became real. So when I screwed up and didn't want to disappoint her and lied to her or failed her or did something that irritated her and I did it willingly and there were all these moments that all my behavior, all my heart said, come closer to me and all my behavior said, keep your distance. When all of that nonsense was going on and there were moments that she had every right in the world to look at me and go, loser, and walk, she stayed. And then she said, I love you. And I went from gnosis to epinosis because she should have bolted and she stayed church are you with me okay i'm a romantic is what i'm saying right and what i'm saying is too many of us are still over here he loves me i know preacher get a new sermon no 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 he loves you when you gave him every reason to bolt he loves you when you lied to him he loves you when he cheated him He loves you when you spoke poorly about him or you ignored him or you knew what he wanted from you and you irritated him anyway. Church, are you with me now? Do you epinosis? The love of Jesus is what calls us together because in the diversity of the church, our unity speaks louder than any sermon. The fact that we don't kill each other is supernatural. But the fact that we love each other and serve together and we contribute and we put up with one another and we continue to draw closer rather than to grow apart is going from knowing Jesus to epinoing Jesus. And herein lies the truth. That's what Paul prays in Ephesians 1.23 when he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. I pray that you'll epinosis him. That you'll understand and by experience that you'll risk it. That you'll enter into this community and experience that you're not only needed, and, and we could debate whether we're even needed, but we're useful. If Braden walks into the kitchen, he sees Heather making cookies, and he says, can I help? Heather doesn't need his help. Heather has all the materials already purchased. She has a stove that's fired up and ready to go. She's got the cookie pan out. She's got everything made. But when her son comes in and says, can I help you, Mom? She can go, I don't need you. She says, no, no, you can be useful. Help me. And this is what God does in the church. He brings all of us weird people together that don't agree on very much except who Jesus is because we epinosis him. And he says, now I'm not only going to make this useful and make you useful, but I'm going to use your diversity and your unity to bless people 
who don't know the love of Jesus at all. Nod your head if you're with me now. The church is useful. It's it's powerful. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants. I want to pause there just for a second. He doesn't say, don't be an infant. What he says is, don't stay one. Grow. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men. There is an attempt to take the epinosis of Jesus from us in frustration. Brad had no idea what I was going to preach about primarily, but to tell the story of Laney running down the, for, you know, run down the hallway and running into the door and wondering, if God really loved me, why did that hurt? How many of us struggle with the same thing in a world that says, no, 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 the word of God doesn't mean what it clearly says. It no longer means that, or that was just put together by a bunch of sexist men who, who didn't understand the real world we to live in. Do you understand the waves that are crashing upon us when it comes to truth? And the truth is important, but together, using our ability, we find the fulfillment of God. Jesus said, give your life away and you'll find it. And the church is not just about us protecting the holy huddle. The church is about us going into all the world with a peace that makes no sense to anybody but God and offering that hope. Why, church? Because we need it. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.